0: I've been opening up my sermons um, for the past couple of weeks by telling personal stories. And despite my inability to get the details right uh, about the birth order of my kids or how long I've been married, um, they are all true stories. Uh, but tonight I decided to change it up a little bit and dig up one of those super impactful stories uh, about a person or small company that nobody's ever heard of that changes the world. You guys ever notice how all pastors seem to know those amazing little stories? They teach them in seminari- uh, seminary. Um, no, they don't. But, you know, like the little lady who who made the phone call for Billy Graham to get uh, Hirsch out there, and, you know, if she hadn't made that call, the Billy Graham as we know him never would have happened. You know, those cool little stories. So I dug one of those up this week. You may have ever heard of the company um, named Google. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is not one of those cool stories, but it is about Google. Uh, Google uh, is not only the crazy tech conglomerate that's, grown from the humble search engine in the beginning, but they've kind of become one of the trend setting employers in America uh, from spoiling their employees from day one. Uh, they've kind of grown uh, to be one of the most well-known uh, employers um, in the way they do things, uh, but they were not satisfied with their success. So in 2012, they decided to turn their kind of groundbreaking algorithms on themselves. They got all their best number crunchers together and they looked at how to build the best, most productive teams. They uh, studied 180 of their own teams. They charted skill sets and personality types. They grouped genders and educational backgrounds. They interviewed hundreds of employees, uh, and they spent several years compiling their findings. And after analyzing 180 teams within the organization, Google found nothing. They found no magic that could that could uh, indicate what might make a great and productive team. The only common thread they could find in the studies was that the best teams had a high level of sensitivity between team members, especially in the area of listening to one another. When Google released their findings within the organization, Matt Sakaguchi, a mid-level manager, decided to run a test. He took his team off campus for an outing, and while out, he shared about his recent cancer diagnosis especially concerning his fears and anxieties about the diagnosis. After a short initial silence, other team members started to share what was going on in their life. They spent several hours with everybody basically sharing their fears and insecurities. And the craziest part of the whole story is immediately after this outing, Sakaguchi's team became one of the most productive uh, teams within Google. Their productivity more than doubled from what it had been before this outing, Google wound up concluding what hundreds of coaches and business leaders and parents have known for ages, that the best teams have very little to do with talent and way more to do with how the team members care for one another. And tonight we're talking about one of the kind of major changes in uh, Israel's national narrative, and it runs right alongside King David's inauguration, and that is the beginning of corporate worship in the land of Israel. Team worship, if you want to call it that. We left off last week talking about David's optimistic kind of manifesto as he became king, his uh, his ambition and kind of the goals that he had set for himself. But the last time we were really in his narrative was two weeks ago where we compared the historical perspective of David uh, becoming king, Saul dying, and David kind of ascending to the throne. And we compared that to the way David saw the story because David didn't see a bunch of little coincidences that put him on the throne. He saw a sovereign God moving things the way he saw fit. And God's complete sovereign control. Well, tonight we're going to kind of pick exactly up where we left off last time we were in the narrative. And just kind of highlight the major turns in the story. If you have your Bible, you can open it up to... Uh, we're going to do this one in Chronicles. Last time we did uh, Samuel. They tell the same story. They just have some subtle differences. We're going to be in First Chronicles 11 if you want to follow along. But this is picking up where we left off. So where we left off, David had just been inaugurated king of Israel. If you remember, he spent about three and a half years being the king of just this little southern tribe called Judah. And then all of Israel came to him and they said, hey, would you be our king? You, Even when Saul was king, you kind of led the armies. You're the man. We want you to be king. So he kind of becomes not only the God-ordained leader of Israel, but also kind of the democratically chosen leader of Israel. And uh, And so this picks up right where we... Kind of left off. It says so there at Hebron, David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and there and they anointed him king of Israel just as the Lord had promised through Samuel. This is where we left off two weeks ago, and the very thing that David, the very first thing David does right after being declared the king, and and they pray over and him, make him king, is is he attacks Jebus, um, which is this big walled kind of city state. And conquers the Jebusites uh, within it. And he, he takes over this city-state and makes it, renames it Jerusalem. Um, so he takes Jebus uh, and makes it Jerusalem. He takes the inner part, called Zion, and makes it his city. From then on, it's called the city of David. Uh, and Joab begins to kind of rebuild the rest of Jebus, the rest of Jerusalem. Apparently, from the damage done in the overthrow, he starts to kind of rebuild it and put it back together. Now the narrative takes a tiny detour um, here, almost two chapters, giving David's team some credit. It kind of just lists all the mighty men of David. They spent almost two chapters just kind of listing the mighty names of De- the mighty men of David and giving some of their uh, exploits some of the things they had done while serving David. But the narrative picks back up in chapter 13. If you want to flip past the mighty men to uh, chapter 13, David's very first act after establishing the city of David, so this new capital in Israel, uh, is to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Israel, to bring the Ark of the Covenant into this new capital. And the Ark of the Covenant always represents the presence of God in the, in the Old Testament. Um, but the way he does it, kind of tells a lot about David's psychological state. That's been kind of what we've been digging into in this study is what was going on in David's mind and heart as this narrative plays out. A lot of it we get from, from his art, from the songs and things he was writing at the time. But listen how he makes this kind of first kingly decision. This is David consults with all of his officials, including the generals and captains of his army. Then he addressed the entire assembly of Israel as follows. If you approve, and if it is the will of the Lord, our God, Let us send messages to all the Israelites throughout the land, including the priests and Levites, in their towns and pasture lands. Let us invite them to come and join us. It is time to bring the ark of God, bring back the ark of God, for we neglected it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed with this, to this, for the people could see it was the right thing to do. David consults his team. In this day, this is not how kings ruled. Kings kind of had an iron will in this day, they just kind of said this is how it's going to be and people followed. So David's off to a little different start. So either he had read Google's research and he knew that the best teams happened through collaboration or he's not a typical king. Uh, he might have even still been insecure about being king, uh, maybe too insecure to make a unilateral decision um, about something like this. We actually get a better look at it. Uh, at where David's mind was right after this little adventure to bring the ark in kind of crashed and burned. David in his haste throws the, ox, the ark on an ox cart and they're bringing it back to Jerusalem or bringing it to Jerusalem. It had never been there before. Incidentally, when God sent them in, he kind of said, you know, set up the ark on Shechem. Um, which is this mountain, and they were supposed to declare these blessings and cur- curses on these two mountains, kind of right in the middle of Israel. So the ark has never been down to Jerusalem. So David's kind of bringing it down into Jerusalem, and he throws it on an ox cart, and on the way they hit a pothole, because apparently Kansas City's not the only place in the world with potholes. Um, but it hits a pothole, wobbles for a minute, and a guy named Uzzah sticks out his hand to kind of balance it, and he just falls dead. And David completely panics. And he stashes the ark in this guy named Obed Edom's house, and he, And he kind of gives up on it, kind of bails. He's like, man, this is serious business. How in the world could I do this? Incidentally, there's some great symbolism in this kind of ark movement because the way Noah said the ark was to be moved was with these big long poles. They put these rings in the side of the ark, put these poles, and they were supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. It was never supposed to be put on a cart, which symbolically is kind of cool that the glory of God only moves on the shoulders of his people. It's not something you can mechanize. It's not something you can you can speed up and and uh, and and throw on you know some kind of mechanical system. It has to. Glory of God advances on the shoulders of His people. Anyway, David bails on the ark uh, for a bit, and the very next story the Bible tells us, which would be the beginning of chapter 14, if you're following along, reads like this. Then King Haram of Tyre sent messengers to David, along with cedar timbers and stonemasons and carpenters, to build him a palace. And David realized that the Lord had confirmed, confirmed him as king over Israel and had greatly blessed the kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. I love this so much. David's been king of Judah for, for uh, seven and a half years. I think I said three and a half earlier. It was actually seven and a half years. The people come to him and ask him to be king. They confirm him king. They, he conquers the Jebusites, takes this huge walled city, and it's not until a neighbor king sends him like some tribute that David goes, holy crap, I'm the king. Like, he's been the king for a while now. This is the first time he's like, realized, he doesn't realize it. It doesn't like set in, wow, I am the king, until somebody sends him some gifts. Like, hey, these are for the king of Israel. And he's like, and probably looked around like, king of Israel, anybody? Oh crap, that's me. Like, and so this is where it kind of sets in. Um, for the first time, I am the king of Israel. This is amazing. So that probably is why he was more gentle in the way he made the decision to, to get the ark. I don't know that it really sunk in with him yet, that he's actually the king of Israel. Uh, and then, does anybody remember when we talked about, it was a really low night, so people were missing, but anybody remember when we talked about what David did right after he became king of Judah, while his men were out fighting? So Joab is still out fighting, um, some things are going on. He settles. And the very next verse, while they're fighting, it tells us kind of what David was doing. We decided not to go deep into it. Anybody remember that? So it's telling all this stuff about what Joab and Abner are doing. It goes, and these are the sons that were born to David while he was in Hebron. Like, like, And so we kind of question maybe what David was doing while his army was out fighting. Um, this happens actually again. So right after he conquers Jerusalem, the very next story starts this way. David married more wives in Jerusalem and had more sons and daughters. So it seems like every time David kind of advances in rank, uh, it makes him feel romantic. So David is now, he's in Jerusalem, uh, does the same thing he did when he uh, uh, became king of Judah in Hebron. He marries more wives and makes more babies. Um, anyway, so then there's a chunk where it tells that David crushed the Philistines, kind of pushed back all the Philistines, and, and it's not super impactful on the story, but it just shows that David is... Uh, has power he's conquering, which is one of the reasons why when we read the Lament Psalms, we kind of talked about this when we read about them. um, David, there's no record of David struggling with enemies in the Bible. Every every enemy he comes up against, he just crushes. The only people David really struggles with are the people he loved, like Saul, people that he fought for and and died for and loved. And, And we talked about how sometimes the people who can make us the craziest are the people we're closest to. Like the people who, when David writes these these imprecatory psalms where he's just pouring out this horrible stuff to God, he's usually talking about people he really, really cared about. Any enemy, he never has any reason to pray about his enemies. I mean, usually it's just, God, should I crush him? And God says yes, and he crushes him. I mean, that's that's all we ever read about David. And he does that to the Philistines here. Um, And then he makes a second attempt at the ark. Right after kind of pushing back the Philistines, he decides, I think David had done some studying because he comes at it completely differently this time. He moves the ark the way Moses had recommended uh, he does it on the shoulders of Levites. They're making sacrifices all along the way. And he, he, he does it very differently than the first time. I think he had probably gone back and kind of read, what did I do wrong? Done some research. But he decides to bring the ark back and he does. And he gets so excited while he's bringing it back he's dancing. He's kind of dancing uh, in a very robust manner and exposes himself. You know, they didn't have good underwear back then, I guess. And he gets a little rowdy and exposes himself. And his wife, Michal, sees it happen. And, uh, and she's not very happy. Um, she, uh, she kind of chews him out when he comes in for the way he was, he was acting. And I love David's response. And we have to actually go back to the Second Samuel version of the story to get it. But he says, yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. That was kind of his response to Michal. And she's the only person in David's house who knew anything about royalty. She came from Saul's house, who was a king. And so she's the only one who kind of has royal expectations. And so she's kind of pointing out that was not very royal of you in this this kind of new dynasty you have. What kind of king? you know, starts off his reign by flashing, you know, the, the townswomen. So she's not very happy that David's not acting very royal. But once David gets the ark into Jerusalem, into the, the tabernacle he had built, it said he had built the tabernacle for it. I assume he had followed Moses's kind of rules for the tabernacle. Incidentally, there's three references later in, the, in some prophetic writings about how God will eventually rebuild the tabernacle of David, which is kind of interesting to think about. Because it doesn't say the temple of David, it says the tabernacle of David, which is a little fascinating. Well, David um, holds the very first corporate worship service in the Promised Land. Really, we—I uh, mean, we—they um, had very corporate worship in the wilderness, where you know they just followed the pillar of fire and smoke around, and and that you know they worshiped together. They said they would stand at their tents and kind of all face the pillar would face the Ark of the Covenant and worship together. But since they've gone to the Promised Land, things have been very scattered. People have settled different. They've, they've gotten together a couple of times. But nothing like this, where they all gather to worship at the ark. And this is my little nerd out for the night, but it's kind of fascinating. They've been in the Promised Land now for 400 years. And this is the first time they've really gathered around the ark. Jerusalem, which has become so iconic and almost synonymous with Israel, like to us today that it, Jerusalem is brand new into the story. Jerusalem doesn't come in until 400 years into the promised land, which is kind of fascinating. And so Jerusalem's about 10 minutes old and they have their first kind of corporate worship. And if just for some reference, if, if you want to think about how long that is, the first pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock about 400 years ago. So a lot can change in 400 years. I mean, if you think about where we were 400 years ago, that's how long it's been um, since Israel has gathered around the ark and had a corporate worship service. They've been in the promised land for 400 years now and, and haven't done it. And so anyway, that's my nerd out for tonight. Back to the narrative. As David brings the ark into Jerusalem, here's how it reads. This is actually our passage for tonight. It says, they brought the ark of God and placed it inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And they presented burnt offerings and peace offerings to God. When he had finished the sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave to every man and woman in all of Israel a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. David appointed the following Levites to lead the people in worship before the ark of the Lord, to invoke his blessing, to give thanks and praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph, the leader of this group, sounded the cymbals. Second to him was Zechariah, followed by Jael, uh, Shemiramoth, they say, you know, as long as you sound confident, nobody will know the difference. Uh, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliah, Benaiah, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom, that's what I love about Obed-Edom. Every single time, so it tells us when the ark went to Obed-Edom, that his house prospered. Every single time from that story on that we hear about the ark... Obed-Edom is there. You see his name. They'll give a list of people that were with the ark. Obed-Edom never left the ark after it came to his house, which is very, very cool. Once he kind of experienced the presence of God that way, he followed it forever. Wherever the ark went, Obed-Edom went, which I love. Um, They played the harps and lyres. The priests, Benaiah and Jeziel, played the trumpets regularly before the ark of God's covenant. On that day, David gave to Asaph and his fellow Levites this song of thanksgiving to the Lord. And then it kind of... Uh, gives this really long, beautiful song that David wrote for this day of worship. But this passage gives us a beautiful picture of David as the leader of Israel. Look what David does that day. it 's just a segment of what we just read. When he had finished his sacrifice, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave every man and woman of Israel a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Remember when Samuel kind of warned the people about what was going to happen if they chose a king to be like the other nations? Um, He was like, they're going to take your land. He's going to take, you know, taxes. You're going to take your crops. You're going to take your sons and daughters as maidservants and to serve in his army. Like he kind of painted this really bad picture. So David is kind of this beautiful contrast on this day as he offers sacrifice to God. And then he turns and gives to the people. He blesses them and and gives to them. He takes nothing. And then he leads them in worship. Um, David sets almost this awesome messianic tone. ...on this day uh, for what the King of Israel is like. And he oversees the first corporate worship service in this new city. And I think he sets the tone for what corporate worship is or should be um, from then on. So as far as I can tell from the narrative and from Scripture, uh, the rest of Scripture, you need absolutely three things to have what we would call corporate worship. So we're going to go through those um, kind of quick. First thing you need, and all these are pretty self-explanatory, but the very first thing you need is God. In the story, this is represented by the ark. They could not have a corporate worship service without, you know, worshiping God without God. And to them, that meant bringing the ark. The, The presence of God followed the ark and you couldn't have a corporate worship service if you didn't have the presence of God. And so they had to bring the ark first. And I think this is actually the belief system that Jesus was kind of confronting in Matthew 18 when he said, wherever two or three of you gather in my name, there am I in your midst. Um, because in that passage, he's actually talking about the power of the corporate church, um, the things that the corporate church could do together. Um, and it's a heavily contested verse. I mean, most of the reformers struggled with what this concept of binding and loosing and what the church could do corporately and how much power it actually has. But in that, he says, wherever two or three of you gather my name, there am I in your midst. So like we become the Ark of the Covenant. We become kind of how the presence of God is transmitted. And the best way to concentrate the presence of God is to concentrate God's people, to get them in one place at one time. And so today we don't really need an ark because we have the people. But to the Jews in David's day, um, God was was where the ark was. And so if you wanted God, you had to have the ark. Uh, David reveals this kind of element of corporate worship in Psalms 20, which would have been written right around this time as we're kind of tracking through David's art, the art that he, that he produced um, in these seasons of his life. This is one of the things he does. For the choir director, a psalm of David. In the times of trouble, may the Lord answer your cry. May the name of the Lord, our God of Jacob, keep you safe from all harm. May he send you help from his sanctuary and strengthen you from Jerusalem. May he remember all your gifts and look favorably on your burnt offerings. Interlude. May he grant your heart's desire and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy when we hear of your victory and raise a victory banner in the name of the God of our God. May the Lord answer all your prayers. Notice that one we towards the end. Um, David has kind of shifted his pronouns in his music uh, now. If you read the Psalms he wrote um, earlier in his stuff, there was more I's and me's. And now he's kind of shifted to this, this we language, um, which indicates the, the corporate aspect of it. But notice the focus on everything here is what God does. May the Lord answer your prayer. May the God of Jacob keep you safe. May He send you help. May He remember. May He grant your heart's desire. The first thing we need for corporate worship is He, is God. The second thing we need is people. Like I said, self-explanatory. Again, from the moment David decided to bring the ark in, he he consulted people. He goes to the people. What do you guys think? Let's, let's bring the ark in and, and worship together. In fact, you can argue that once Uzzah dies, as far as David is concerned, this is not for him. He's afraid of the ark. He's like, how can I, how can I bring the ark into my city? Like, he's, he's scared of that much of the presence of God. But David wants the people to have a place where they can come and worship God. So this whole thing is about the people. This whole thing is about creating a place where the people can worship. And then once he does get in, he immediately blesses the people. He offers a sacrifice to God, then he turns and blesses the people and gives to them. To him, the worship wasn't done just in giving an offering to God. He does that first. The, the, the corporate worship did not happen until he gives an offering to God, and then he turns and gives a blessing and an offering to people. He, he, to him, it needed both aspects to be corporate worship. I give to God, and then I give to others. That that was the, the way that corporate works. So you have to have other people. And David reveals this new focus in his art. In Psalms 124. A song of pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. A psalm of David. What if the Lord had not been on our side? Incidentally, they think this was probably a rally chant. When everybody's walking and everybody's kind of getting tired, somebody could go, what if the Lord was not on our side? And everybody would join in and start kind of chanting or, or singing the rest of the psalm. It was, so you have this opening line where, everybody could, uh, where somebody could just shout it out and then everybody knew the kind of response. It was kind of a call and response thing. So what if the Lord had not been on our side? Let all Israel repeat. They think that that was probably like in parentheses, kind of like a guidance thing. They wouldn't actually say that line. It just told everybody, hey, here's how I want the music to work. When somebody says this, everybody repeats. Um, Anyway, what if the Lord had not been uh, on our side when people attacked us? They would have swallowed us alive in their burning anger. The waters would have engulfed us. The torrent would have overwhelmed us. Yes, the raging waters and their fury would have overwhelmed our very lives. Praise the Lord. Who did not let, who did not let their teeth tear us apart? We escaped like a bird from the hunter's trap. The trap is broken and we are free. Our help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But notice how this one starts. In terms of David's art, uh, this psalm really shows how his music writing has changed because for the first time ever he's got that let all Israel repeat. He's now writing music that he expects Other people to sing. He's not just writing poetry and songs to God anymore. He's writing uh, music that's intended to be sung by groups of people. We see a total shift in the way he thinks in terms of music. And incidentally, for me, this is the difference between Christian music and worship music. I'm a big fan of worship music. I love music that's written um, to be sung by the church and, and the way that that. Kind of shapes us as a people as we sing it together. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think it's, it's all throughout the history of the church that you can see the church being shaped by the music we sing together. It's kind of what creates, um, who we are and how it changes us. And I think it's, it's super important. Christian music. So the music that's written personally, like to be played on the radio or, I, I, I don't find nearly as compelling. Honestly, if I'm looking for lyrics that sound more like David's lyrics about the pain going on in life or I'd find that in secular music almost more easily than I find it in Christian music. Christian music, we seem uh, to have kind of mixed up this, uh, the aspects of, of what um, the art is supposed to do. I know that freaks some people out, but uh, I'm not a big fan of, of Christian music, though. I love worship music. I love music that's written designed to be sung by groups of people all together. I think that's a a beautiful thing. And so David has now kind of crossed that line in his songwriting. He's now writing for groups of people. So his art has changed now from being this thing where he pours out his kind of guts and feelings to God to him now writing for groups of people to sing. And so we have, we need God, we need people. Uh, and the last thing we need is location. Location, location, location. You have to have a place. Um, today, the presence of the Holy Spirit and, and Jesus' promise to be with us wherever we gather kind of makes this a little more vague. But in David's day, in the narrative, before he can bring the ark in, he has to capture Jebus. He has to capture this big walled city, this safe place where his people, I think he knew that he was going to be gathering a lot of people together, very vulnerable. You know, if we're going to be getting our whole people together to worship in one place, have this huge corporate worship service, we need a safe place to do it. And I think that's why he targeted this city uh, of Jebus, where the Jebusites were, because I think from the beginning, he saw this as the perfect place for worship. He saw this as the perfect place where we can gather all the people. We can draw them from miles around, get them in here, and worship together behind this kind of safe haven, this wall. And this is revealed in his art. Psalms 122, again, written in this same time period. A song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. A psalm of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And, let, and now we are here, standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a well-built city. Its seamless walls cannot be breached. All the tribes of Israel, the Lord's people, make their pilgrimage here. They come to give thanks to the name of the Lord, as the law requires of Israel. He stands, uh, Here stand the thrones where judgment is given, the thrones of the dynasty of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, may you have peace. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. So David's art, which has always been about God and is now kind of being written for groups of people, is also including his city. Like, we've, he mentions Jerusalem in all three of the Psalms we read tonight. He's now writing, you know, about this location. And the thing that I think is most interesting when you look at the art that, and, and kind of the way we track the art is, have you ever talked to, like, a true fan of, of like, a band? Like, if you talk to, like, a, a, a true diehard fan, they don't talk in terms of favorite songs or best songs. They talk in terms of best albums. Have you ever noticed that? The people who are the true music fans? Like, you never go to a YouTube fan and go, what's your favorite YouTube song? you know they would say anything off Joshua Tree like you know they just speak in terms of whole albums i think that if i if i could go back i think i would instead of breaking david's life up into epics i would probably have broken them up into albums like this is album 1 album 2 cuz you do that with bands especially bands that hang around for a while you see the entire nature of the album change you know depending on what's going on in the band's life well this this is david's worship album no doubt like in this in this uh kind of epic of his life, he's writing completely different than anything we've read so far. You know, in the first epic, we read a lot of nature stuff, how amazing God is, and the way he makes things, and some of the metaphors he finds in nature as he's out watching his sheep, and then he moves to a second epic, and that was a complete change, because he's constantly upset and broody, and he's dumping his emotions as he's feeling this injustice of Saul wanting to kill him, and... and uh, and he's constantly feeling like he's And he doesn't feel God's presence. He's like, where are you, O oh God? How long will you turn your face from me? I I can't find you anywhere. Um, and now all of a sudden, it's a completely different tone. Now he's writing about his city. He's writing for groups of people. Everything has changed again. It's a completely different album. And we can see that it just kind of falls. Well, Dave is the kind of songwriter whose art changes depending on what's going on in his life. Uh, and the reason I bring up this kind of dramatic change is because of there's something missing in David's music now something that's kind of gone as he writes for corporate worship there's one element of his music that that's kind of different now and it's there when we studied in Psalms 13 or 19 uh in the very beginning some of his nature poetry may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you O Lord my rock and my redeemer that's the very first psalm we studied in this study it was there in Psalms 13 Oh, Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you look at the uh, look the other way? How long must I struggle? The me is gone in this epic. The I is gone. It's traded for us and we. His pronouns have completely changed. The thing missing from corporate worship is you and me in light of the us. This is hard to even talk about today um, for several reasons. First. Psalms 19 and Psalms 13 are completely valid and they have a place in our lives. They're, they're, uh, there's nothing wrong with dumping kind of the, the deepest and best and worst parts of us on God. That's, that's the best place to take them is straight to God. But the, the real reason this is hard to talk about, not only because this stuff does have a place, this is very valid, but also because that's just not how we're conditioned to think today. We're not conditioned to think in terms of no me, no I, an us. Like we're trained to be consumers and it carries into how we do church. We have hundreds of church options. If you include online church, we have thousands of church options. And it feels like the most natural thing to do is to go, which church meets my needs? Which church best suits me? And and we go in looking for a church that suits us. And, and right off the bat, the second we step in, we're not thinking us. We're thinking me. We're thinking I. We're thinking, does this have the things I like? Is this church about me? Everything from services offered to aesthetics to style is on the table. How does this church fit me? This is so built into our understanding that we don't even really know how else we might pick a church. If I don't go pick a church for the one I like, how else would I... Pick a church. Even if you look at most of the music, what's interesting, when I was looking for a response song, for a song to sing during communion tonight, I was scanning through the, the worship music for we and us language. And there's not much. It's still mostly I and me language. Like we gather corporately, but then we sing as though we're singing personally. Like nobody else exists. It's just between me and God. This is a this is a me and I moment. Even though we gather to do it. Like it's it's interesting how how we don't think much about what it means to be an us, what it means to be a we. The problem is if the service, the worship service in First Chronicles is an example of how corporate worship should work, the focus is totally different. David sacrifices to God. David blesses people. David gives to people. David leads other people in worship. When David enters corporate worship, the direction is completely outward. Nowhere is he thinking, how does this meet my needs? This is this is what Michal, David's wife, missed. She got caught up in the fact that David wasn't acting very kingly. He wasn't on a throne and kind of in the center of things. He wasn't the center of attention, you know, like the king should be. He wasn't kind of sitting in his rightfully elevated place. But I don't think David was even thinking of himself as the king in that moment. I think if he, was, he was thinking of himself as Israel. Like, I don't think he was thinking, am I the king or not the king? Because he wasn't thinking about David. In that moment, David is just Israel. He's just part of Israel. He's thinking in terms of the us, not the me. In fact, he says this right before he kind of like gave his, I'm willing to be completely and utterly foolish. David says this to Michael, the verse before. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord. That's his only answer. There's no like, she's like "Oh, very kingly of you to expose yourself to the, to the town's women. He was like, I was dancing before the Lord. Like, I don't know, like this was not a, a moment for me to be the king. This was a moment for me to be a worshiper. David was putting no thought into his status or how people looked at him. His focus was on God. In fact, you could argue that in in his eyes, he wasn't there in that moment. Only Israel was. The only way to that corporate worship is about you and me is in the question, how do I serve? Where do I give? How do I contribute to the corporate worship? So how do we respond to this? There's a couple of things I want to focus on as we respond to this passage night. First, from the last uh, psalm we read, Psalms 122, I like that last verse. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Jerusalem. As we talk tonight about corporate worship and especially the location aspect of corporate worship, I can't help but think about how close we are to finishing our building um, and moving to a new location. And I realize today we don't put the same emphasis on the presence of God being locational, being geographical, as they did in David's day, but I still can't help but hope that the presence of God is in our new building in a way that changes Wellsville. I hope that that maybe doing church there, maybe the way we gather there, maybe the way we love other people there, will bring the presence of God in a different way. And I love... Psalms 122, uh, 122 here, for David's care for his city, this capital that's been the capital for about 10 minutes, like this isn't, David's not thinking of Jerusalem the way we think of Jerusalem in this almost iconic way. Like he's he's working it into his art and it's kind of becoming this thing. Now it's synonymous with the ark almost. It's just synonymous with the presence of God. We think of Jerusalem, as, but at this time it was just the new capital. It was there's probably still people calling it Jabus. You know how long it takes to change the name of something. I'm sure half the people still called it Jabus. I doubt everybody was calling it Jerusalem yet when David writes Psalms one twenty two. I have a feeling it you know, it was just this new location and and David is is writing stuff like this like uh when it was almost brand new. It wasn't the kind of talismanic Jerusalem that we've turned it into. It was just David City. And I think we could even hijack this this verse without getting too far from the original meaning. And I think we could say, For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek what is best for you, O Wellsville. I think we can I think we can go and we should go in. Like wanting our presence there to make a difference. Not going in going, Hey, this is a great space for us. We can do our own thing. We can you know, we don't have to set up and tear down, we can, you know, blah blah. All of those things are amazing and I'm very, very excited for those things. But hopefully we go in and and because we worship there, we want to see what's best for the town because that's where the house of the Lord is for us. That's where we gather for corporate worship. Hopefully we want to see Wellsville changed. And I mean, hopefully we, David said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, we read that back now that, you know, seeing what Jerusalem became prophetically and all the stuff that gets built into that, to that name, but... But I think David was just saying, Pray for my city. Like, pray for the peace of my city. Like what if we prayed, what if our response to this message was to just ten seconds a day. God, I'd pray for Wellsville. Just make that bless that town. Pour out your presence on that town. Not just to bless us, not just to go and go, Oh, we get this great location that really suits us, but what if us worshiping there brings the presence of God to that town and, and we can start to pray every day, once a day at least. Just ten seconds. God Pray for the peace of Wellsville. Pray for, for the prosperity of Wellsville. What if our presence there changed the town? Second way I'd love to respond tonight is to maybe just take a minute as we go to, as we go to the table and repent for the times that we've approached church as something that serves us. And we've all done it. I've done it a thousand times. Like, what, how does this meet my needs? How does this suit me? And maybe to bear the fruit of that repentance, we would say, who can I bless? Who can I give to? Who can I, you know, how can I come and contribute? What can I give? Who can I, who can I call today or text today and say you're amazing? Like, who can I just pour myself out to? I mean, David, you know, he offered sacrifices. He blessed people. He gave to people. He worshiped. What if we set that as our pattern and we said, I'm going to church not to get, you know, not to receive, but to, to hunt for somebody. My, my job is to go and find someone to bless, to make a sacrifice to God, to worship, but yeah, to look for somebody I can bless and give to. And I'm not suggesting we become a doormat. I mean, there's one of the reasons we don't live at church is that we don't live in the midst of corporate worship is because, yeah, we, we need to tend to our own needs too. We need, to, you know, we need to take our needs to God and absolutely pour those out before God. And But it's, it's, it's ironic. I think if 100% of us, were completely bent on meeting other people's needs. So we all came like hunting for someone's needs to meet. Somebody would have to be the recipient of all those blessings. Like, I think we would all wind up getting our needs met. And what generally happens is we all come looking to have our needs met. And when you get a group of people all trying to receive and nobody's trying to give, then none of us get our needs met. The best way to get our needs met is to just go about Meeting needs, when that becomes kind of the, the process, the way our church thinks is who can I bless? Who can I give to? Who can I take care of today? I'll give you a small example. I'm, I'm a, a, a very rambunctious worshiper, if left to myself. I, worshiping with my whole body comes pretty naturally to me. If I'm in a rowdy atmosphere, my hands are constantly in the air. I'm on my knees. Sometimes I'm flat on my face. Like I, I worship with my whole body. And some people are like, well, that's how you worship. How come you don't worship that way? And and my answer is because this is corporate. Like if I'm over here throwing a fit in the back and everybody's wondering what's going on with Chris, then we're, I'm not thinking of you. I'm not, you know, just that's just me going, hey, this is how I worship. You deal with it. Like And, and a lot of us have that attitude. A lot of us have that, you know, worship's a personal thing. I, you know, I can worship however I want. But but that's not why we gather. We gather to worship together. We gather to worship corporately. And so I get as rambunctious as I can without drawing attention to myself and making everybody, you know, stare at me the whole time because that's not what corporate worship's about. I think one of the most dangerous things we can do is to approach our corporate worship, that's a hard word to say over and over, by asking if it's what I like. Is this Does this suit me? Does this meet my needs? Google had a ton of manpower, and their best algorithms to figure out what I think David did instinctively 3,000 years ago. You can't pick a bunch of individuals, no matter how talented or perfectly blended or balanced they might be, and put them in a group and call them a team. It doesn't work like that. You make a team by including everybody, by making them heard. David did this when he consulted Israel. What do you think if we got the ark together, got the people together, all in one place and worshipped? You also have to get people to give to the team rather than themselves, to think outside themselves. David demonstrated this in the first worship service when he sacrificed and blessed and gave and led in worship. I think we should do the same.